0: Most of us like stories, right? Um, whether it's fantasy, whether it's science fiction, crime, uh, whatever your flavor, whatever your particular brand of of story, we all like stories, right? We all have those kind of. Um, we, we like stories. We like to. We like the progression of of stories. And one of the um, things that makes books and TV um, so special is how stories progress, right? It's how details are woven intermittently into the introductory part of the story to maybe build a world, to build a, a, a universe, to, to, to build characters for character development. Right? Just throughout a book, throughout a story, pieces and details are progressively revealed for us um, so we get a bigger and larger picture of what we're reading about or what we're watching or what we're, what we're listening to. Um. And that's something that makes stories so special is the way they progress. And tonight we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John um, and the passage we just read. One of the things we're going to look at tonight is this idea of progressive revelation. Um, Basically, progressive revelation is what we just described. Details being, 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 being... Shown details being woven into the, the beginning parts of the story, the middle part of the story, to kind of build a narrative, to build to a purpose. Um, and where authors of books and TV and movies, um, while well, they craft their stories this way, the author of life has crafted the story of history this way too. God has revealed throughout history, specifically tonight, we're going to be talking about the Old Testament. God has progressively revealed details and different pieces of Scripture to build to a single particular purpose. Um, And our narrative tonight is going to build to that purpose. The passage we're looking at tonight is going to speak to that purpose. Um, But moment of context for our passage. We we were going through 1 Peter, and so we had the benefit of um, just methodically week by week getting different pieces of the story. Right? We've got we to got look at how Peter was, was writing his letter with specific purposes and how he built on ideas and whatnot, but we don't get that benefit tonight. So we're just going to add a little bit of context where we're at tonight. Um, and um, So first, uh, the passage that, that we just read is part of a larger passage where Jesus is responding to a group of religious guys. Um, you might have heard the term Pharisee or Sadducee. Jesus... Right here in this passage is responding to an objection by these guys. Um, These men were devout in their faith. They were devout in their their understanding of the Torah, of the Old Testament, um, of the books of the law. Um, And um, where we find ourselves tonight in John 5 is these men are actually furious with Jesus, furious to the point where they're actually plotting to kill him. Um, Let's look at John 5 16 through 18 real quick to add some context. Um, John 5, 15, the man went away um, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, Making himself equal with God. So these guys were pissed at Jesus because he was, because of the things he was saying, he was making himself equal with God. He was claiming an authority that they thought previously existed only with the patriarchs of the Old Testament. What they had such a problem with was him stating that he's the Son of God, effectively making him an equal with God. They had a problem with him claiming an authority that they didn't believe that he had any right to. Um, And in this section, we're kind of jumping at halfway through Jesus' response here. The first half of Jesus' response is more claims to authority, okay? Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. They don't like that. They don't like that he's calling himself the son of God. They don't like where he's placing himself in the divine hierarchy. And Jesus doubles down on that. He says in verses 19 all the way through 29, he claims even more authority than he had previously claimed. He says, I have the keys to Hades. He's basically, he claims a big portion of that section is about the judgment. It's about the end. It's about Jesus' authority over the end. And what he's saying is he has the keys to Hades. He has final authority over life and death and everything before and everything after. Um, And of course, this is going to upset the religious guys. Of course, this is going to hit a spot on these guys who have their hope in what they believe to be their understanding of this Old Testament. Um, and so rather than marveling at, this, um, at the power of Jesus as he heals this man, they get angry at him because it's on the Sabbath. And rather than seeing his works and miracles and taking that as a witness to his authority, they reject him, they plot to kill him. Um, And again, this is the second part of Jesus' response to that hostility. Um, In that first part, he claims authority over everything. He claims authority over creation. He claims authority over humanity, over judgment. He claims authority over everything. He says, God has given him everything, all authority under heaven and earth. <clears throat> so the text we're diving into tonight this is the second part of Jesus' response um, to these religious peoples, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these, these men's objections to who Jesus claims to be. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read our entire passage tonight, and then I'm going to pray and ask God to help us um, just with greater understanding of the gospel. Um, so we're going to read all of John 5, 30 through 47 together. <clears throat> I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the father has sent me. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have His voice you never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, and yet it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father God, I'm, I'm grateful for this campus. I'm grateful for GCF. I'm grateful for this church. Um, Father, I pray that tonight you would just, um, you would open our eyes to the beauty and glory of the gospel. That through Jesus' response to these individuals, um, through his appeal to their witness, that that you would just press on us the overwhelming supremacy of the gospel. Um, that you would grow us in our understanding of our hopes um, and in the culmination of our hopes. Father, I pray that this, this long, thick, dense passage, would, would, we, could, we could break it down. We can dissect it and we can see the gospel in it um, as with the rest of scripture, Father. Uh, God, we love you and we thank you. Um, we're grateful and uh, I pray this in your name. Amen. Um, so what we just read is Jesus, again, or previously to this section was Jesus claiming his authority. and what we just read was Jesus... Um, um, sorry, excuse me, got lost in my manuscript. I'm a little I'm still new at this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, previous to this passage, Jesus's claim is that he'll be the final judge, the final arbiter over life and death on earth. Um, a bold claim, and as I said, he, it's a double down on what he had previously claimed. Um, and what we're, what we're going to look at tonight is following this claim to ultimate authority is Jesus' appeal and proof of those claims. And he does it in a kind of insulting way to these guys. He does it in a really subversive way to the prevailing religious wisdom at the time. Um, And just, I want to add one little piece of context here. Um, This book, we haven't been in this book all semester like we had Peter. Um, What's the point of this book? What's the point of the book of John? Why did John write it? What was God's purpose in this book? We can look at John 20, uh, 30 through 31. um, And we could see what John says, the purpose of his own book is. Um, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the point of this book is to persuade. The point of this book is to testify to the truth of Jesus' claims to authority. Everything written in this book is for the express purpose of persuasion, persuasion to the gospel. Every event Every, every narrative, every, every objection, objection people bring against Jesus and every response Jesus makes has the express purpose of drawing us into a deeper belief in the gospel. That's the point of the book. It's a testimony to the divinity and the lordship of Jesus. So this account right here, the specific account of Jesus responding to these guys has a spe- specific purpose of growing our faith, of growing our understanding of pressing us into a deeper belief in the gospel. Um, and keeping in with that theme, this particular text is about belief. This particular section is about, um, this book was written so that we may believe, and this Jesus' response here is so that they may believe what he's claiming. So this is a, it's a great text for us tonight. And in this text, we see, we're going to see three different witnesses. Okay, We're going to see three different witnesses that point to and affirm Jesus as the ultimate authority that he claims to be. We see three different sources that prove that Jesus isn't just a good moral teacher with some nice things to teach us. Our text doubles down like Jesus did. This book is not just about morality. It's not just some wisdom to add to your life. We have three sources that proclaim the ultimate authority and supremacy of Jesus. I've said that like 18 times, and I'm going to say it 18 more. This, this text is all about the authority and supremacy of Jesus. Um, it's, the, it's the Jesus that, that John 1 describes. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That's what this book is proving. That's what this text is speaking to. And something really cool about these particular witnesses that Jesus does is that he appeals to three witnesses that actually carry a lot of weight with these people that are objecting to him. All, our, all of Jesus's proofs here carry a lot and a hefty amount of, of weight with, the, with, with these religious guys. Um, and the first of these proofs, the first of these witnesses is John the Baptist. We can see that in John 5, 32 through 35. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears is, excuse me, the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, that's John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So the first witness we see here, the first proof of Jesus' claims to ultimate authority over life and death, over judgment, over creation, his power over everything, his first testimony is that of John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist, um, way back in John 1, um, he was... John the Baptist, uh, excuse me, the Levites. Levites were the, 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 the priests in the Jewish faith, okay? And now John the Baptist had come on the scene. Um, he, had, he had found a lot of favor with the Jewish people, um, not necessarily particular with the priests or the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but a lot with the Jewish people. And so the Levites sent some of their guys to go to John and say, and to ask him who he was. He so like, you have a lot of favor with these guys. You speak really eloquently. You're doing, like, crazy things. Who are you? They actually ask him if he's Elijah as if he's an incarnation of Elijah and John responds, no. They ask him if he's a prophet and John responds, no. Um, And finally they ask him if he's actually the Messiah and John responds with um, actually by pointing and saying, someone else is coming, someone greater than I, someone with more authority, someone with more power, Someone was coming that doesn't only point to the the Messiah, but someone who is the Messiah. John is an important figure to these people right now. Um, He's a man of eloquence, uh, a man they rejoiced in. As our text says, a lamp and fire to them. He He was special to them. This man that they held in such high esteem is actually pointing to Jesus. And so their objections come from a place, or rather, excuse me, they, they, they object to him and Jesus' first appeal, first witness is this man that, they, that, that, that is really important to the Jewish people. Uh, and this man himself in an encounter with Jesus um, claims to actually be of such low standing compared to Christ that he isn't even worthy to untie his shoes and wash his feet. John was a great man and yet claimed nothing next to the man Jesus Christ. That's our first witness tonight. Um, John the Baptist, our second witness. um, We find in John 5, 36. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John. A greater testimony. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, our second witness tonight that Jesus points to as proof, as a testimony to his his authority over everything is his own power. The things he's been able to do, his miracles. Uh, As we said right at the beginning of this text, one of their major objections is coming from Jesus healing a paralytic man on the Sabbath. Uh, A dude who had been lame, bedridden for 38 years. Jesus heals him, but because it's on the Sabbath and it infringed on the religious construct, they had a big problem with it. Uh, 38 years of this man um, hadn't been walking, 38 years for his muscles to atrophy, 38 years of begging and misery, and he was healed by the very words of Jesus. He puts on display his command and authority, and his power over creation, over disease, over death, over the physical universe. He says that testimony is greater than that of John even. That what you've seen me do. Jesus' second witness is his power, his acts and his miracles, the good things he's done. He's saying, look with your own eyes. That's a testimony in and of itself. Look at what I've done healing blind people, raising the dead, telling a lame guy to walk after 38 years of misery. You've seen it. They themselves are a witness to what Jesus is claiming. He says, you've seen what I can do. You've seen my command over what I claim to have command." And as far as eyewitnesses go, aren't judges? In a court of law, if a judge witnessed a crime, wouldn't that be a good, a good arbiter for what actually happened? These people here are judging Jesus. They want to kill him. They want to put him on trial. And they're, they're seeing his miracles. They're seeing what he can do. Jesus' second witness is his power. Jesus' second witness is their own eyes, the very people rejecting Jesus. And as if to put a final divine nail in the coffin, Jesus appeals to a third witness. Um, actually, really, this could be three witnesses, but coming from a single voice. Um, we will show you that in one second here. John 5, 37 through 40 and 45 through 47. Um, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have, you've never heard His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, yet there is one who does accuse you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The three witnesses we see packed really into one here are God, the father, Moses, the Moses and the prophets and the very scriptures themselves that they hold so dear. He says, you've never heard God. You've never seen God, but you have the scriptures. You have the prophets. You have his words through prophetic writings you, have, you hold Moses so dear. You hold the law so dear. The, you hold Moses, the man who, to whom the law was given, so dear. Yeah, he points to me. The, 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 what you hold most dear. You have John the Baptist, a man that they care about. You have their own eyes seeing his power. And you have the thing that they hold most dear. And it is the scriptures and the father and their law. All testifying and pointing to Jesus. For 2,000 years, leading up to Christ, God had been slowly and methodically revealing his purposes. Paul calls it a mystery often. A mystery that God had slowly, progressively been revealing throughout the Old Testament. God making his plans clearer and clearer and clearer as time stretched on. You see this um, through the patriarchs. You see this through the history of Israel and their periods of rule and dominance and their periods of suffering and slavery. You see it through the judges and the prophets. You see it in the poetry of the Old Testament. You see it throughout the history of the Old Testament, all building to a single purpose, a single point. For 2,000 years, God's progressive revelation was building to the man Jesus. You see these men objecting to him. They believed that they had an idea of what God had in mind and they cherished it. But as God often does, he took what they cherished in life and bared wide open the emptiness, the hopelessness, and the misunderstandings, the empty hope of what they actually had their hope in. He says, you think you know what the scriptures say? You think you know the Bible? You think you know the Old Testament? You think you know the law? You have no idea. They all point to me. They all point to Jesus. The words of Moses and Abraham, the law, the words that God spoke through the prophets, all of it finds its purpose and its meaning in a single place. And Jesus is saying, that is me. That is Jesus. First Peter one twenty, we looked at it earlier this year, describes God's plan for redemption as being laid out before the foundations of the world. That before there was light, before there was dark, God planned to redeem everything through Jesus. From the outset of everything, God's plan has been Jesus. From the inception of the world, God had planned to redeem everything through the gospel through Christ. Peter says that in Peter one twenty. Paul also speaks to this in Ephesians 5. I actually just discovered this this week, or last week. Um, Ephesians 5, uh, 31 through 32. Um, this is a, a, just a dense section about husbands and wives. Um, but it says, This is a quote of Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says this, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's a direct quote from Genesis 2.24. The fall, Adam and Eve, that doesn't take place until Genesis 3. Paul is saying the very institution and inception of the concept of marriage was built on the idea of marrying Christ in his church. See the meta narrative of the entire Old Testament, it weaves together to build to the gospel. That is the point. God's progressive revelation was to present more and more evidence of Jesus' Lordship and Jesus' authority. The point of the Old Testament is Jesus. The main purpose of the Old Testament is to shadow the gospel. The main point of the Old Testament is to shadow the Old, excuse me, shadow the gospel. So what's the point of doing something or learning something or seeking something if you don't actually get the point of it? Okay, so... um, What's the point of working through an accounting degree if you're not going to actually learn how to be an accountant? If you're just going to memorize tables, you're going to memorize terms, and you're going to do all, all of the minutia and all of the work required to get a degree, but you're not actually going to learn how to be an accountant. That after your degree, you can't go and do the books for a company. What's the point? It's a silly analogy, right? It's kind of a ridiculous analogy. But if it's so ridiculous, then why is that our approach... To scripture, so often. So often we look in here for moralities. So often we look in here for truths to apply to our life. But if the ultimate point and the ultimate culmination of everything is the gospel, why aren't we seeking that through everything in here? (laughs) See, Jesus uses these five witnesses. These five separate witnesses, three with one voice, um, five things that carry weight in these men's lives, and yet they flee the implications that he's making. A man that they respect and believe in, their own eyes, the works of Jesus, Father God, the Father God, speaking through the prophets, Moses and the patriarchs speaking through the law, and the very scriptures that they hold so dear, so much weight behind his claims, and yet, where are they? All of that, all of it points to and screams that their very purpose is found fulfilled in Jesus, and yet these men still flee, yet these men still disbelieve. See, it's not a lack of proof it's not probably even, a, it's, it's, they have enough evidence in front of them from the things that they cherish most and yet they still don't believe. Why don't they believe? Because it's a will thing. They don't want to believe in Jesus. They have all the facts and proof and weight they could ever need to believe in Christ and yet nothing. It's called denial. Willful unbelief. Um, And we see that in John 5, 39 through 44. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, it's the lie that promises glory and delivers none. The great deceiver present at Adam and Eve, present here, it's self-exaltation. You see, Jesus presents all this evidence Yet, where does he say their problem lies? They're looking for glory in themselves, not in the God who brings it. See, they rejected Jesus because they were content to find their own purpose and meaning. See, this was unbelief and prideful self-exaltation masquerading as religion and faith. The reason they couldn't see God, that God made flesh standing right in front of them, was that their glory and their weight and their meaning and their purpose, they were looking for it in themselves. It's self-exaltation. See, they didn't want saving. They didn't want a Messiah. They didn't want to give glory. They wanted to receive glory. Kind of a ridiculous concept, isn't it? It's that us, broken, fallen, finite creatures, seeking glory and meaning outside of the perfect infinite sufficient God as if we're something special as if we can supply some kind of satisfaction that God can't that the gospel can't i mean it's the it's the endless cliche in disney movies and on tv just be yourself find your center you be you right but you being you is just indulging in a sinful self-exaltation seeking glory in a bottomless pit of vapidity. See, these guys had God in the flesh standing right before them, and they rejected him in favor of what their fallen, finite, reasonable minds had believed. As if our capacity to reason and philosophize and contextualize science in some way carries more weight than God's own revelation in scripture. And the irony of all of this um, is in its conclusion. Jesus exposes their hopes as nothing more than vanity. Their heroes were the patriarchs. And Jesus says in John 5, 46 through 47, for for if you believed, excuse me, it's 45 through 47, right? Um, I'm gonna read 45 through 47, even though it's not on screen. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you, believed in, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, their hope was in Moses. Their hope was in the law delivered to Moses. Their hope was in themselves. Their glory was in themselves, their own ability to do and to perform their own ability to be moral and not do things on the Sabbath. (laughs) But their hope in Moses, but in their hope in Moses, they missed what Moses' hope was in. Turn to Exodus 33, 18 through 19. It says, this is Moses on the mountain. Moses said, please God, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be a gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. See, Moses was in the presence of God asking for glory, a taste of glory and hope. And God says, you ask me for glory and I'll give you my goodness. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will be merciful to whom I will have mercy. And later on in verse Chapter 34, verse 6 to 8. It's not going to be on the screen. Um, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And here's the key verse. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Moses was asking for a taste of glory. Moses said, show me glory. And God showed him grace. God said mercy. God showed him forgiveness and kindness and love and justice and faithfulness. Each one of those things Culminate in a single place, and that's the cross. Moses asked for glory, and God gave him the gospel all the way back in Exodus. That's what these men were missing. They missed that marriage at its inception points to the gospel in the church. They missed that Moses on the mountain was pointing to the gospel. Then when he asked for glory, he got the gospel. They missed this man, John the Baptist pointing to the one that would come next. What an indictment of biblical moralism. What an indictment of a nominal faith. Your moralism is worth nothing. If it doesn't have its source and its fulfillment in the gospel, That's what these men were missing. What an indictment of their spiritualism and faith without the gospel. It's not moralism or being a good person that redeems. It's not following the morality of the Bible and believing, even even believing in God doesn't save the soul. It always is. It always will be and it always has been. Jesus that saves, Jesus at the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, him clothing clothing, clothing us in righteousness and him taking our sin being hidden in the gospel. We're free to pursue relentlessly Jesus. Do you see, Jesus showed these men that their hope and their confidence and their spirituality was worth nothing if they didn't have Jesus, if they didn't have the Christ, if they didn't have the Messiah that was promised by all and he's showing us that our hopes, they aren't worth a breath if they aren't drenched in the gospel. See, the purpose of all of this, it's to press on our unbelief. As John said in chapter 20, that you may believe that Jesus is Christ and have life in him. That's the point of all of this. It's all about Jesus. See, we have the benefit of living this side of the cross, post-cross. We don't live amidst the progressive revelation that these guys did. We have that benefit. That's God's grace in our lives. And I want to leave you with this: just that the last or the only lasting source of joy, the only lasting source of satisfaction, the only lasting source of hope, is the gospel, not in anything that you can do not in anything this says outside of how it points to Jesus. See, if you have this, but you don't have the gospel, you don't have anything. What do you have? Emptiness. See, these men trusted this book. These men trusted. They loved this book. They really wanted to seek God, I think. They just missed it. See, we said earlier that the point of the Old Testament is to shadow the gospel. But what if all you can see is the shadow and not the one that casts it? What happens when the darkness comes? We spent a lot of time in First Peter this semester talking about trial and suffering, and pain and anguish and heartache. What happens when the dark night of the soul is upon you and the light fades and all you have is a shadow? What happens to that shadow, without light? If all of this points to the gospel, if all, of this, if all of this points to the gospel and all of this finds its culmination in Jesus and yet you don't have the gospel and you don't have Jesus, all you have is empty and unrealized hopes. You see, this story has already been written we don't need the progression of it anymore. It's been written. Jesus wins. The gospel saves. So hold fast to Jesus. This whole thing is about Jesus. That's what I want to leave you to with tonight. When you're reading through the Old Testament, all of it speaks to the gospel. We saw Paul saying that the very institution of marriage at its inception, before the fall of humanity, points to the gospel and the church. That's crazy. That's insane. That before the fall, God had revealed that Moses asked for glory. And what did God give him a picture of the gospel? So don't miss Jesus and don't chase vanity and empty hopes outside of the redeeming work of Christ. Let your life be saturated and drenched in gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we are, um, we're thankful for your, your word. We're thankful for your revelation um, through scripture. We're thankful for your teaching. God, I pray fervently that our understandings of all of it would be drenched with the cross, that it would be built up and, and built on the gospel that anything we read, that anything we have our hope in, that any way in which we we seek joy or satisfaction or glory or hope is just saturated with the gospel, with the work of Jesus. God, I'm grateful for GCF. I'm grateful for this. Tonight, I I pray that you would do a work in us and help us understand the gospel more deeply so that we can articulate it more effectively and apply it to our lives, Father. We love you.